Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, everyone. I'm Ben Webb-Crosser, the Managing Director of Global Council. Thank you very much for joining us today for our latest um, conference call, digital seminar looking at the current state of affairs in Ukraine and its impact on the rest of the region and the world. I'm joined today by two uh, fantastic uh, friends of Global Council, commentators and experts. Um, Owen Matthews, well-known writer, historian, uh, Russia correspondent for The Spectator, based currently in Rome, uh, author of the most recent book, An Impeccable Spy, uh, An Impeccable Spy uh, a very well-received book looking at one of Stalin's uh, master agents. So Owen, uh, has a very long track record in following uh, issues and events in Russia and will be able to share his thoughts uh, over the course of the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, also joined by Sergei Drobish, currently based in Ukraine, a political analyst, uh, academic, uh, someone who has been supporting and working with Global Council uh, recently. And we're very privileged to have him join us today from Ukraine. Sergei, we're very grateful to you for finding the time uh, to do so. I've got a whole bunch of questions that we're going to go through. Uh, if people have comments that they'd like to put into the chat, please do so, and I'll put them both to Owen and Sergey. But, but Sergey, perhaps just, just, um, just to come to you first, maybe just for the benefit of people on the call, maybe you could just currently paint a picture, feel whatever you're comfortable with, where you currently are at the moment, how you feel about your safety and security, and what's the environment and the atmosphere in the town that you're currently based in, in Ukraine? Uh, yeah, so, so far, the place where I am is relatively safe and calm. Of course, we do have um, daily air raid sirens um, due to rockets flying over Ukrainian um, territory. Um, uh, according to the recent intel uh, that I've seen online, it is expected that these sirens are going to be even more frequent, frequent because now the rockets are being launched from the sea. So... Um, it kind of Im implicates, you know, wider territory, you know, with, without really much clarity where the rocket would go. So basically, everybody is, you know, alarmed. Um, yeah, so far, so far, um, it's 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 generally calm here. We have received a, a few rockets, um, a few uh, diversante were were caught here, uh, sort of like the enemy enemy agents in the back, uh, setting up um, the kind of the path for potential. Potential diversions um, and psyops, um, but so far it's been it's been it's been calm. In a, in a way, we're acting as one of the useful, um, like we're you know we're being being kind of behind behind the soldiers. We're helping with uh, with supplies. We're helping with refugee flows. Um, uh, so in that in that sort, we are we are having this very important role. Right. Well, we wish you all the best uh, with that and the, the best will in the world in your ongoing safety and security. Um, now, let's turn to the subject that we're going to be discussing um, today. Uh, both of you have your own perspectives on this question, both from the point of view of uh, the situation in um, uh, uh, Russia and obviously in Ukraine. Um, I want to start by looking at three different scenarios as to how events might plan out over the course of the next month or two. We have, and we've done some work on this at Global Council, and we, we, we see three basic scenarios uh, panning out. The first is what we would call uh, a new modus vivendi, essentially Putin securing the objectives that he wanted when he started the war. The um, uh, Ukrainian borders uh, settled 
into some and confirmed in some post ninety uh, post uh, twenty fourteen uh, uh, arrangement and a, a greater clarity on on the neutrality of Ukraine uh, going forward. The second would be a stalemate, uh, a, a long permanent. Um, uh, lack of clarity over Ukraine's future direction, an insurgency of some form on the ground, uh, and, uh, and and similar to you've seen in other uh, sieges in in other uh, recent episodes, probably most recently in Chechnya. And then the third is a is a Russia with withdraws uh, a loss uh, in the terms as you currently see at the moment, with Putin having to with, return to either pre twenty fourteen borders or certainly not achieving any of the objectives that he had hoped in the middle of February when the war started. So, uh, Owen, let me turn to you. Of those three scenarios, which one do you think is most likely at the moment? Well, let's call it two scenarios, because um, the idea of Russia returning to its pre-2014 borders and giving back Crimea is completely inconceivable. Ditto, ditto giving Russia surrendering LNR and DNR, the two breakaway republics of Donbass, inconceivable. So we're talking about two scenarios. Let's be very clear about that. I mean, the uh, what's really striking um, is how limited Russia's war aims are. And that's actually the big news the last few days. It's rather hopeful news, actually, um, because uh, Russia went into this war essentially in secret. And I have it on very good authority that even during the fateful um, February 20th Security Council meeting, only three people in that room um, Putin himself, Sergei Shoigu, his defense minister, and Alexander Bostrichi and his old buddy from uh, St. Petersburg University uh, and, and the KGB uh, were actually aware of the full plan. So, I mean, not only was uh, were Western analysts surprised when the full invasion plan unfolded, but actually even Putin's own cabinet and military. And I think we've seen a lot of intelligence from, uh, not just from uh, anonymous inside the Kremlin, but uh, inside the Russia's uh, military machine, but also from POWs, prisoners of war on the ground, that have uh, reported that the Russian army was completely unprepared for this. And they really, uh, it's, uh, the, the, the whole sort of blitzkrieg plan was, uh, was, was ill thought fought through. Uh, and crucially, the war was launched without really any clear objectives. And they were stated for the first time by Dmitry Piskov last Thursday. And there were the, the framework that we're now talking about, which is recognition of the breakaway Donbass republics, neutrality for Ukraine, and denazification, whatever that means. Uh, now, crucially, they're not the big war objectives that we had inferred from Putin's speeches, uh, both last uh, July with his big, you know, uh, mystical nationalist historical screed about Ukraine, and then when repeated again on uh, um, uh, on, on the 21st of, of February. Um, and th that unstated big objective was to decapitate the Ukrainian state, install a puppet regime and dismember Ukraine and basically uh, erase Ukraine's uh, existence as a, as a nation. Now, that plan has clearly failed. And we now know that Putin has acknowledged that it's failed because of his limited war aims. And I think it's actually very significant that the things that we're talking about now are exactly the same things that he had been talking about without actually having to bomb Kiev, Kharkov, and, and Kherson and Mariupol uh, before the war. And to me, I think that's a really important uh, uh, indicator that the Kremlin has acknowledged its overreach. <laughs> 
So the question becomes, how does Putin retreat from this? How does Putin get out with a safe face? How does he actually pull some kind of victory out of this uh, effective defeat of his blitzkrieg? Um, and that's the question between, that's the difference between scenario one and scenario two that we're talking about, is you know how much more blood and rockets and shelling and you know essentially medieval sort of siege warfare is he going to have to go through in order to find a compromise um, that saves his face? Because I think it's abundantly clear that he's not going to uh, take central Kiev. It's abundantly clear that he's not going to be installed be able to remove Zelensky or install a puppet regime. So the, the, the only question is, you know, how much pain does he have to take and what kind of uh, road out is he willing to accept in order to actually withdraw his troops? Because occupation is clearly not a viable uh, a viable option. And we know, um, we, know we don't know what the sources are, but from the British Ministry of Defence uh, put out a little, a little intelligence briefing today saying that actually up to 28,000 Russian troops have been killed 7,000 which they have been killed in Britain's estimation and uh, 28,000 have been killed Captured or wounded. So occupation is an option for Putin. Right. Thank you, Owen. That's excellent. Um, Sergey, let's turn to you. Two two questions. Do you accept that there's only two scenarios, or would you suggest that that third scenario that I described may well still come to pass? And then building on from that, which one do you think is most likely as you currently look at events from Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think your your first scenario that you suggested was, was that Putin gets what he wanted. And it seems to me that this invasion um, happened, well, this renewed invasion happened on completely false intel in a way. I, I, I don't know what, what the reason was here. Was there some, it was some sort of sabotage or just complete misunderstanding of what, what Ukraine is, is about. But the tr when troops moved in, they, they expected to take the country over. I, I view it as, you know, an attempt at occupation and sort of decapitation of of the government um as as a blitzkrieg i mean the troops uh came in with very limited supplies with very limited food um but they the the you know the strategists have seem to have significantly underestimated the um you know the the, the population um that was you know willing to resist the strength of of ukrainian army and uh, the, ter the determination of, of the government, um, and I think you know, to to quite a lot of a lot of people abroad, it, it was also a surprise. You know, Zelensky's um, kind of spirit, and you know, his famous phrase of uh, saying like, "Don't don't give me a, a ride out of Ukraine, give me bullets." Um, you know, at, also at some point, uh, um, Yanukovych and Azarov emerged. You know, in Belarus, uh, you know, the former former president, and former prime minister, who um, who removed during the revolution of two thousand thirteen and fourteen, and you know, according to some, they were kind of considered as viable potential puppets. But again, you know, looking at if if one looks at them as viable options. Um, they they completely misunderstand Ukraine. They misunderstand the attitude, um, and um, yeah, I think uh, the exit. The, I'm also concerned about about the the exit the exit strategy for for Putin uh, because uh, I mean, as as Owen said, you know, some of the some of the. Um, 
goals of this military assault were denazification and demilitarization uh, and also Ukraine's neutral status. Um, uh, I mean, um, I, I think he, he could he could sell some some of that to to the population through through the propaganda machine. Um, but I mean, I am I'm I'm more concerned about to me. One of my fears is that it is kind of in a, in a, in a stalemate scenario where Russia continues to to get you know bogged down and uh, as Owen said the the Russian assault has has been slowed down significantly they're they're barely moving um and Russia could escalate with either chemical weapons or or even a tactical nuclear attack because their conventional forces are not making um you know are not are not are not making much of a move and are not pressuring our government um, enough according to their goals in Putin's mind, what do you think denazification actually means? Whether one agrees with the concept or not, doesn't matter. Clearly, no one in their right minds agrees with it. But what, what do you think Putin would, would, would view denazification as? I'd say that's a good question. I, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to get into his head, obviously, and so many analysts are trying to understand what his thinking is. Um, but it seems to me, and you know, there is a lot of people are arguing that he ended up being in some sort of an echo chamber, and that he he might you know genuinely believe that Ukraine is run by by Nazis, that that we have you know Nazi parties um, in 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 our government, um, which which is completely untrue. I mean, obviously, we, we do have some far right elements, just like in any country. I mean, our president himself is is Jewish. Um, and so I, I think here, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not, not entirely sure. Uh, Owen, what do you think? Well, um, clearly, um, the whole denazification, um, I mean, very, very, I mean, much of Putin's signaling has always, has actually been um, signals that are um, like you know, dog whistle signals that are entirely comprehensible to uh, Putin's audience and his propaganda machine, but which we in the West don't get. And one of them, one of the early ones is genocide. So since 2014, they, the, the Russians have been talking about genocide of, of, of Russian speakers in the East. Like that's such a weird thing to call it. Why? Because actually, as Orlando Feige said uh, um, a few days ago, um, it's a clear reference to the Kosovo War. NATO bombed uh, Belgrade and took over Kosovo in response to a genocide. That's the reference that Russians get. We don't get it. And similarly, denazification. In the same way, it's a reference to the entire ideological underpinning of this war, and indeed of much of the Putin regime, is the Russian national myth, the primary Russian national myth on which Putin has built his regime, which is the heroic fight against Nazism. So um, it's actually not really about, I mean, the, 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 it's, it's much less about the reality of, you know, right sector and the Azov battalion and, you know, the, the fact that they, uh, that they wear sort of neo-Nazi symbols and so on um, on, the, on their battle fatigues and so on. But it's all about messaging to the Russian public because they've got themselves, it's, it's a very interesting example of the tail wagging the dog. Putin has created an ideological 
почва, a sort of ideological field uh, in which to sow his ideas for the overtaking of Ukraine. And it's based on the myths that every Russian and Soviet person remembers from every war film. It's all about the heroic defense of the world from fascism. And, you know, although it's profoundly divorced from reality, this propaganda narrative has actually now found its way into the diplomatic narrative because it's a really important part of his climb down. To, to put it in more simple terms, if you have launched a war to denazify Ukraine, you, if you want to come out with it claiming some kind of victory, you have to claim that you have in some strange way denazified Ukraine. Uh, challenge. There, you know, the Ukraine actually happens not to be run by Nazis. So it's all about Uh, the whole denazification demand is actually profoundly linked to the sort of mythology that's been actually been going on since 2014, by which Putin has actually um, formed the, 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 the basis and the support for this, for this war. So um, if your question is, what does nazification mean? Um, the, the real question is, you know, what can Putin sell his people as under the guise of denazification? And that's really strange. Because, I mean, and that, that, that's a real challenge because does he expect, for instance, Zelensky to, for instance, dissolve the Azov battalion because they wear the, the, the um, Wolfenkreuz or whatever it is, like there's uh, some, some uh, you know, Nazi uh, era insignia. Uh, is he going to dissolve the Azov battalion, which have, would have been among the most active and heroic defenders of, of, of Mariupol and they've been fighting on the front lines of Donbass? Um, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, You know, but it's it's uh, all of this denazification is all about Putin's bridge to actually claim some kind of victory. But that leads us to actually a more, much more profound question about the nuts and bolts of Russia's dis disengagement, and that is moral hazard. I mean, how you know, Putin, in order to survive, in order in order to disengage from Ukraine and withdraw, has to be able to claim some kind of victory. However. Ukraine and the West cannot allow him to claim victory. That's the paradox. That's the moral hazard. And that's what we're going to be talking about between the ceasefire, which I think is actually going to be relatively imminent, and the peace plan. It's going to be all about Putin's face. How much are we going to allow him to get away with what he's done? You know, obviously, Ukrainian people, I mean, Sergei could obviously speak about this much more, uh, much more uh, clearly and passionately. But, you know, clearly the Russian people, the Ukrainian people, you know, hate Putin's guts and they want him to lose badly. The West wants to show its unity and it wants to humiliate Putin and make sure that he's lost. However, Putin cannot withdraw having lost. That's the paradox. Now, one big feature here, Owen, is obviously Russian public opinion. And it's, quite, it's clearly quite difficult to, to read this, but there are indicators and signs that perhaps we can draw on. The ongoing uh, collapse of the ruble, a uh, sense of challenge on some of the TV talk shows, the social media blackout and the fact that Instagram and other platforms that were available two weeks ago have now vanished from people's telephones, the protest on the first channel with the producer that popped up with a placard. How would you assess Russian public opinion at the moment, three weeks into the war? Well, none of the things that you've mentioned actually concern Russian public opinion, um, unfortunately. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the closest thing on, on that list is the, is, the, is the very heroic and brave uh, process by Marina Avsyanikova, the, 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 the producer who came on for six seconds. Um, unfortunately, um, the reality, um, I was in Moscow last week, um, 
the reality seems to be that a very large number of people are essentially, um, you know, passively in favor of the war. I mean, that's just a fact um, because they're not very interested. Um, the, the the idea that sanctions and Instagram and um, uh, and Facebook disappearing from their phones um, is somehow going to change their minds. Um, it's much less likely to change their minds because they now have less access to contrary opinions in the in the unlikely case that they happen to have Facebook friends that were against the war. I mean, the, 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 the polling uh, for let's uh, say um, that's actually owned by the by the by the Kremlin. They've they've been releasing polls suggesting that slightly less than sixty percent approve of the military campaign. And by no coincidence at all, seventy percent is exactly the number of Russians who um, uh, have television news as their first source of of information. So um, sanctions are a double edged sword, as we know. You know, the North Korean government has been under sanctions for 70 years. I mean, that has not actually changed the regime. Similarly, similarly with Cuba, Syria, um, uh, Iran, you know, uh, sanctions don't change regimes. And in many ways, they actually strengthen regimes because Putin's narrative, as we heard from his really terrifying, vituperative, awful, kind of almost Stalinist speech, uh, yesterday about the fifth column and about traitors and so on, is for him, all of these sanctions are the West punishing Russia. You know, and the West has been, you know, is, has now is, has been at war with Russia. If you listen to Russian television, that's a narrative. It's the West has basically been at war, information war, and economic war with Russia for years. And now we're seeing the fruits of it. So actually, a surprising number of Russians, even supposedly international Russians, even, you know, smart, educated Russians, an amazing number of them, and I'm sure a surprising number of your friends too, Ben, have found that you find amazingly that you know a huge number of apparently sort of patriotic morons that you thought were actually smart, clever international people, but actually, no, they're, they're with the program. Uh, indeed. Sergey, let's turn, sorry, Sergey, turn to you. Sure, I was just going to make a couple brief comments. Um, I, have, I have also seen uh, the polls that are claiming that about 73, well, there are a couple different polls, you know, some of them claim that there are 73% uh, people supporting the war. Another one says that there's 86%. I'm not entirely sure how much we can we can trust them, uh, really, on sanctions. Uh, I agree, you know, it's, it's a sanctions are a very long term tool, like the effect is not is not immediate. Um, I mean, we are seeing some impact already on the availability of goods, you know, on on the shelves. You know, the the tightening of the informational environment, especially for for the youth who are getting their um, information online rather than from the TV. I think we have we have missed out a very interesting and crucial point um, in you know changing Russia's public opinion. And again, this will be impacted by the availability of information but you know seeing it from ukraine here um there is a lot of cyber activity going on there are a lot of groups uh of volunteers who you know not only um have learned how to ddos versus you know uh, various government um, services and websites but there have been multiple sort of civil um 
attempts at delivering the information about the war to Russians. You know, there are things like, you know, people would organize special bots that would help them dial Russians, you know, and tell them what's going on in Ukraine. There were initiatives like, you know, finding gruesome pictures um, online, you know, of Russian soldiers and then sending them to regular Russians or, you know, putting them even on uh, places like, you know, Google reviews, basically. Um, so there is this there's this huge, huge effort of um, common people trying to deliver uh, the truth to the Russian people. But again, it would probably be, um, I mean, because a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, mothers and, and, and fathers and, uh, you know, family members do not know where, where their, uh, where their relatives are and what's happening to them. They haven't had any contact with them. Um, and, um, yeah, there's, there's, it's, it, it's something that I, I haven't really seen that many, I guess, international news outlets talking about is the cyber aspect of, uh, people trying to deliver the truth and, and kind of change public opinion and stop the war. Let, let me just ask, just, just to build on that, Sergey, we've seen some examples of Zelensky. Well, to what extent do you think Ukraine is seeking to influence Russian public opinion? You've seen Zelensky speak in Russian. Uh, clearly targeted at a Russian audience, not all of whom will be based in uh, Ukraine. You've seen Zelensky talking to the mother, to sending out messages to the mothers of Russian soldiers. Do you think that, uh, I guess, two questions, do you see this as being uh, one of the objectives that Zelensky is trying to pursue, trying to influence Russian public opinion? And do you think he has any chance of succeeding? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think on your first point, uh, yes, it's probably a part of, of this broader broader attempt. Obviously, um, Russian public will not be watching Zelensky's full, uh, you know, press briefings that run anywhere from like seven till thirteen minutes, mostly in Ukrainian. But I guess he is using those short windows of of time to make these kind of quick targeted messages that could then be cut out by by the volunteers and then you know sent to to the Russian public um, along with you know other efforts like you know sending pictures and, and video footage in order to to help them understand what's what's actually going on here. Do you think Owen the, the demonizing of Zelensky has is still uh, being actively, you know, followed and established thought in Russia, or do you think that it's been neutered over the last month? Um, ben, Sergei, uh, I wish I could actually share your optimism. Um, I mean, as gospel according to St. John, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Um, wh what, a, what a fantastic idea it would be to believe Russian friends of mine in London, uh, their line is, the Russians have been, Russia has been captured by a madman. Our country is, is being held hostage by Putin and he's deceiving thousands of people. Unfortunately, I very fundamentally disagree with that analysis. They're not being held hostage by Putin. They're not being fooled by Putin. They're not being forcibly prevented in an information bubble from learning the truth. And if they get a text message or a robocall saying like, sort of, guess what, they're lying to you. No. Sadly, the truth is actually much more sinister and is much more important to, to understanding of the key to Putin's power. And actually has many ways, um, a lot in common with the phenomenon of Trumpism. It's not that people are being, Russian people are being deceived, they are deceiving themselves. And on a personal level, you can kind of understand it. It's much more comfortable place to believe in 
a sort of beautiful nationalist lie that your country is great, standing up from its feet, standing up to the world, saving a country from fascism. That's a lie, but it's a kind of beautiful lie, especially when compared to the very uncomfortable truth that your country has actually got, your country leaders gone crazy, your army is, is, is a bit rubbish, that actually they're performing, that they're, they're inflicting horrific war crimes against, against Ukrainians and so on. That's a horrible thing to acknowledge about yourself, about your country, especially for Russians, as we know, you know, Russians have a very strong tendency to identify with their with their state, with their country, you know, the sort of the whole sort of subordinate um, sort of tradition that goes back centuries. Um, Russians are complicit in their own deception. That's really a fundamental truth. That's why Russian television propaganda works. And that's actually um, the really sad point about the information bubble, because as Sergei absolutely rightly said, they're in an information bubble, they're cut off from, from, um, from access to independent media or what we would call independent media from what they would say would be Ukrainian and Western propaganda. But um, the, uh, the, 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 real, the real deciding factor for me is not information. Truth will not make them free uh, in terms of propaganda. What will actually cause a gigantic thing, and um, Sergei, wants to, I know, wants to respond to, to, to my point about propaganda, but the next thing we need to talk about is what happens when the body bags come back. In other words, the Afghanistan scenario, because already we've seen a lot of Russians, you know, we, we, I've seen one example of, you know, Russian mothers challenging a Siberian governor, I think it's in Novokuznetsk, saying like, why did our kids go to Ukraine? Why were they sent to Ukraine? And when they start coming back in zinc coffins, then you start having a real problem. I mean, uh, the numbers I read, I think it was something, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was something like 15,000 <clears throat> Soviet troops died in Afghanistan. And if you believe the numbers that you were just sharing earlier, uh, up to perhaps 28,000 Russians have already been injured or died in Ukraine. Well, those numbers are, those numbers are extraordinary. Afghanistan lasted <clears throat> eight or nine years. So you, you I mean, Owen, just... Just just to extend the argument, how do you think public opinion will change and what will be the trigger points then along the, along the scenarios that you described? I mean, the, 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 um, put it this way, I'm, I'm, the Afghanistan was the beginning of the end of the Soviet, of the USSR. It was the fatal mistake that killed the USSR and destroyed communism. However, Lenny Brezhnev sent troops into Afghanistan in 1979. The system collapsed in 1991. You know, the Russo-Japanese War was the beginning of the end of the Tsarist Empire, just you know, sh sh showed its contempt for the people, it triggered a revolution. That was in 1904. The revolution happened in 1917. So actually, unfortunately, the, you know, the cause and effect doesn't really help us um, in actually predicting what the Russian people will actually do. I mean, the only thing that we can say with some certainty is that um, the um, although the Russians may be complicit and they may be uh, happy to delude themselves and believe the propaganda. What's undeniable is the ripple effects in every community across Russia when the body bags start coming home. And th th that is clearly going to be a political factor that Putin and his propaganda machine are going to have to deal with is, you know, in thousands of cities, if we're to believe the Americans um, that uh, and, and British intelligence, you know, in thousands of Russian cities, there are going to be, you know, ripple effects as families and, and communities start to feel the actual human costs, you know, on their own hide, as the Russians say. Oh, and so I have I have two questions to you. Um, first one on public opinion. Do you see the difference between, you know, the young and, and the old and the kind of the 
the opinions by 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 the younger people and the older people and whether the the youth is actually trying to have influence their their family members or the the older population that's number one and the second one um there's there's a lot of talk you know i can i can i can see you know in in social media and in uh, you know in, in news news outlets about the impact of elites on on putin and their impact in trying to kind of stop the war because you know previously before 23rd they were they could go anywhere in the world they had you know amazing assets amazing villas they they were they were going to all these charity events and hanging out with with the with the powerful people um and within you know a few days they become they became their assets have been frozen their their visas has have been revoked and now they're basically just stuck in russia those who were there uh, although some of them seem to have managed to move to the uae to dubai in particular according to the to the data as we've seen well on the first question so yeah, I, i i'd actually be more interested in your answer about the the, the young old because uh, i'm sure you know plenty of people in russia and you have friends in Russia and you correspond with them. I mean, what do they say about, you know, and I'm, I, I'm, I, I guess that many young people that you know, as many people that I know uh, who are young, uh, think that this is all sort of craziness, but they are surrounded by an older generation that you know, disagree. I mean, uh, have, have you personally had experiences of like sort of your friends, you know, having intergenerational arguments, arguments with neighbors and so on? Uh yes I I I have you know I have been in touch with with a few friends but I you know at the same time I realized that having gone through the universities that I have gone through they have these individuals have been very you know very liberal very progressive they you know very keen to build their careers in in in, in the west um but you know a lot of them I mean I, again I, I don't have that many russian friends maybe like off the top of my head like 10-20 but from what i've seen you know from their activity on online they have been trying to to spread the information to um to try to impact uh well again you know them using social media to spread information seems to have been an effort to share this information to russia-based youth probably um rather than their grandparents or parents who probably don't use Instagram or Facebook. Uh, but I have heard stories of, you know, them trying to, you know, them actually talking to, to their parents, talking to their grandparents and trying to, trying to convince them and uh, deliver, that's, deliver the information of what's happening now. Let's, let's, let's come back to the catch 22 that Owen described a, a, a moment ago, whereby for the war to end, Putin has to, Uh, uh, secure some kind of victory and the war won't end if he seeks to secure that victory. From the point of view of Ukrainian public opinion, do you think it's sufficiently sophisticated to understand that dilemma? Question number one to both of you. And secondly, again, from the point of view of Ukrainian public opinion, where do you think they will settle on a some kind of resolution or reconciliation with the Kremlin. Oh, and why don't you kick off? Yeah. Well, um, it, it's, it's a kind of Palestine situation um, because uh, in the sense that on the ground, it's incredibly clear and it's been clear for years precisely what needs to happen because actually the truth is um, the ideal outcome for Ukraine is to get rid of, literally like draw an iron curtain across the current, or across the 2014 to 2022 line of control, let the LNR and DNR go. They are just like a rust bucket, completely 
um, destroyed, horrible place. I've been there. I, I mean, it's just like in a Gorska Zhavshny. It's like sort of bombed out coal mines. It's a it's an economic disaster. It's a basket case. The LNR occupies 35% of Lugansk Oblast uh, region. The DNR is 50% of, of Donetsk region. Um, maybe it was a sort of relatively prosperous place once, but like now it's a, it's a basket case. Half the people have left. Um, you know, just cut those, cut them off, like goodbye, thank you, like you know, good luck with that, and just let them go, and let you, uh, Crimea has already gone de facto, I mean, the, the chances of getting Crimea back inside the in zero, that's just a fantasy. Unfortunately, the paradox is that it's sort of a problem that it becomes unsayable um, because it hands a victory to Putin, the catch-22 we're talking about. But actually, it's really clear that what would be great for Ukraine is, okay, redraw the borders. Like you lose, it's a, uh, uh, Ukraine is, uh, so Crimea is actually a rather significant chunk, chunk of territory, but LNR and DNR definitely are not. Just, you know, redraw the line and just take Ukraine into its prosperous European democratic future, you know, um, as a candidate member of, of, of the EU. And also, by the way, don't join NATO. That's just sort of a crazy chimera. And it's even mad that it's considered to be one of the fundamental sort of causes of this war. Ukraine was never going to join NATO. It could never legally join NATO. No country with any disputed borders can join NATO. Ukraine has had disputed borders since 1992 and when Transnistria. I mean, it's a complete crazy chimera that has been discussed and unfortunately um the 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 very fact that it's been discussed has actually encouraged the russian paranoia but uh, neutral status for ukraine is not a terrible idea i mean many people in the ukrainian political elite i mean the ukrainian ambassador just before to, to london just before the war said why shouldn't ukraine be uh be neutral just like sort of finland sweden austria whatever i mean but but within some kind of uh, security guarantee network and Zelensky very cleverly and i think very wisely has already signaled that like he doesn't want to join uh he's signaled that truth has already been obvious that you know Ukraine will never join NATO, and that's now being sort of acknowledged. Zelensky has also very smartly acknowledged that he's willing to to to, to discuss, you know, the status of LNR and DNR. But um, so the point is that the actual nuts and bolts of an acceptable solution are, you know, very clear. The details are about the not so much about the denazification because that's sort of crazy fantasy in Putin's head, but you know the military. Um, limitations that uh, Putin is demanding. I'm not sure that's politically acceptable for, to, to Zelensky. And also about the borders of the DNR and LNR. So, like, you know, is he going to insist on a land bridge linking um, Donbass to, you know, via Mariupol to Crimea? Um, is he, you know, can he claim victory if he actually withdraws to um, not pre-2014 borders? That's inconceivable, but like post-2014 line of control borders. Um, so those are the details that are going to be thrashed out. And the big question, and this question that's really, Sergei can answer much better than me, is, you know, what is politically acceptable to Zelensky. I mean, how can he actually sell this concession to Putin to the Ukrainian people as the price of peace without it seeming like a defeat? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think, you know, in the in the past 
past weeks um i mean I, I don't have any any sociology on on this but just by reading you know the the online online forums and uh, you know people's responses to to ukrainian advances and uh, to all those videos and everything people have been have been seeing how how strongly ukrainian army has been responding and there are a lot of uh people advocating to kind of push them push push the russian army beyond you know kind of to basically win back win back uh donbass you know there's a talk about crimea again i think that is that is that is unfeasible um so you know in, in a way right now zelensky's government is is seen as you know this this heroic heroic team that is almost kind of winning winning back what we've lost some time ago and you know when you're completely right it's going to be very very tough sell if they if they if they do try to do that on nato i think the the opinion um seems to be changing especially given you know all these multiple pleas of you know closing the sky and providing more military support um obviously a lot of it has been is 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 problematic for 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 the west for 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 europe and for the us they wouldn't want to uh to get you know basically be in in direct confrontation uh with um with with russia i mean there were even some you know jokes um uh, online saying like ukraine shouldn't shouldn't be filing an application to join nato nato can file an application to join ukraine you know in, in that sense there has been that kind of confidence um i think i think one of the i think Sorry, one of the concerns yeah can i just ask just to jump in there the you, you talked about the strong performance of the ukrainian army and how that's boosted to public opinion and morale as someone who's lived in ukraine for some time does this surprise you did did you have a sense of the level of preparation that sort of were taking place in the run up to the 23rd of february I mean, here in the west we had been led to believe that the russian army would crush the ukrainian army and that things would be completed relatively quickly that's not turned out to be the case clearly but the sense of surprise that we have now clearly we've just been informed by our media but as someone that was on the ground in Ukraine, did you? Does the level of preparation, did the 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 speed and the efficiency which the Ukrainian forces have responded to the Russian army? Did you have any sense that that might be happening in the run up to the twenty third, or or not? Mm, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. You know, I I, I also thought that Putin wouldn't wouldn't invade. That there wouldn't be a full scale war. I expected, you know, a local flare up you know probably in donbass in order to um to to uh to gain some concessions from from ukraine but yeah i i have been surprised um uh, again maybe i just wasn't wasn't monitoring it enough i mean um a few weeks uh before you know the invasion we have been receiving a lot of military support from from the us i mean literally huge planes were landing here with a lot of um military equipment and and bullets and 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 whatnot um, I, I think one of one of the reasons why why the Ukrainian army has been well, several reasons why the Ukrainian army has been so efficient is that first uh, we're fighting a defensive war. That's that's number one. You know, there's there's also a huge domestic support. Um, basically, every every town, every, every city, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of, of volunteers who are providing food and, and, and shelter and intel. And we have had, you know, these territorial defense units in every in every region that are cooperating with 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 the military. Um so and apparently, you know, the other well, there has also been a lot of support from our from our allies, including in terms of information um and intel. Um 
So I was I was gonna was gonna say something else, but it just completely slipped out of my head. Um, I think there was also um, I, I don't remember where exactly I, I read it. Um, I think it was some military analyst on on Twitter who was basically saying that um, I think Russia was expecting that Ukrainian military command is going to be much more centralized. Um, but you know, within a few days of war, uh, there was a bit more kind of it was kind of decentralized, you know, a bit more autonomy was given to the units on, on the ground. Um, so I, I don't know how, how, um, how realistic that, that assessment is, but that, that might be playing out somehow. And, and Owen, the, the surprise and the uh, efforts and the impact of the Ukrainian military, what do you think that's, what impact has that had, do you think, in Moscow, amongst the military in Moscow? To what extent have they been surprised by this, do you think? Uh, they've been surprised obviously. Um, but let's not get carried away. Um, the Ukrainian army is losing, it's losing ground daily. It's losing people daily. Um, what's surprising is how strong and how organized the resistance has been. But let's not be under any illusions that if Putin wants to crush the Ukrainian army and occupy Ukraine, he could potentially do that. The problem is the Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainians are much weaker militarily than the Russians. But the point is, every conflict since World War II, with the exception of Korea, has always been an asymmetric conflict. And the lesson of asymmetric conflict is not that the weaker side has to win, the weaker side has to not lose. And that's the whole point, is that it's all about costs. You know, the you know, uh, if America could have won Vietnam by applying a sort of World War II level of effort, they were not ready to do that politically. Um, they, you know, Americans lost 60,000 people in, 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 uh, in, in Vietnam. The, the, the point is that, you know, um, it's all about inflicting costs and at what point the costs are too big for the aggressor to bear. And that's where the sense in which the Ukrainians are winning on the ground is that they're just making the Russian advance incredibly bloody slow and revealing all kinds of uh, operational uh, problems for instance with the with, with, with the, the the russians have failed to establish air cover their supply lines have been have been messed up um uh, man pads and words, like um, javelins and so on anti-tank missiles have been very effective stingers have been very effective um the russian the the, the, the ukrainian air defenses have actually been much more diversified the bayraktar uh, drones um have actually been, managed to very successfully ev ev uh, evade Russian jamming systems. I mean, all this sort of technical stuff on the ground has shown them that their blitzkrieg didn't work, as we've clearly established, that actually Ukrainians are, uh, are against Russia, which uh, they were not expecting. And uh, in short, the takeaway is that the cost is much higher than the Russians uh, uh, expected. But the, question, but, the, but, the, but the question going forward is how much of that pain and cost, I mean, because what we're talking about when we say military costs, we're talking about sort of pain and blood and death. How much is Putin willing to accept and inflict? And that's really the big question. So that then, then we get back into the, the, the political paradox of the, of the Catch-22, is that he can continue, he can surround, he can surround Kiev, he can do his amphibious assault, which lots of people are expecting, on Odessa and so on. He can finally crush Mariupol and, um, and even actually potentially surround a whole pocket of um, 
uh, of of the Ukrainian army by linking up his forces uh, around Donetsk and the and, and Lugansk with uh, the incursion that's happening in in Kherson and sort of cut off a gigantic section of the of the, of the Ukrainian military traffic basically um, south of uh, south of, uh, of of Kharkiv sorry I beg your pardon south of Kharkiv but I mean all of these things being uh, being possible on the ground they're going to be very bloody and difficult and costly for Putin. How much can he actually, uh, how, how much punishment is he willing to take? You haven't, Owen, mentioned tactical nuclear strikes in any form. I was <clears throat> discussing this with someone today. As I understand it in Russia, the Russian rules are that three people, the, the president, the defense minister, and the head of the general staff have to agree to the use of nuclear weapons. Do you think that, uh, oh, at what stage do you think Putin starts to consider these to any extent? Can you excuse me for an interruption? Uh, there is an air raid siren where I am right now. I might need to drop off. Sergey, you drop off. You, I don't want you to be in any danger. You go. Owen? Um, the um, uh, nuclear strikes. Um, well, for what it's worth, I have it on um, uh, pretty good authority by someone who is... Uh, um, very senior to in uh, uh, very close to the um, uh, Chinese uh, military and government, um, uh, who says that um, uh, last week uh, the, the the Chinese are extremely sensitive um, and extremely alarmed uh, on several levels, but um, they were alarmed um, by the extent of Putin's uh, uh, incursion, which they were not expecting. They, um, they were uh, Alarmed that um, uh, at the extent of Western sanctions, and they were surprised um, at how much private company sanctions uh, were actually damaging to the Russian economy. But most of all, they were alarmed by Putin's uh, uh, declaration at the beginning of the war that um, the nuclear forces will be put on some kind of special regime, whatever that meant. But clearly, you know, clearly he was considering that. So my understanding is that there was actually um, not government to government, but military to military contact um, on a very senior level between the Russian and Chinese militaries. And uh, the deal was essentially that um, uh, the Russian military uh, agreed not to use tactical nukes. There was a deal done. And um, on the uh, other side, the Chinese, um, I'm not sure whether this is true or not, but the Chinese perception is that they played a very important role in securing the uh, US's U-turn on the Polish MiGs. So the Chinese think that they did that. Um, in, and it was a major quid pro quo. And that's why, in fact, today's uh, deal, uh, talk between uh, Biden and Xi Jinping is actually enormously important because uh, China's role, um, I have no way of verifying that information, whether, in fact, the Chinese have talked the Russian military down from actually um, intervening, ever using tactical nukes. But I think what they have made it really clear is that if they do use tactical nukes, then the repercussions not just from the world, but from their mates, their allies, their public allies, China, are going to be cataclysmic. The China, although we customarily, and they've positioned themselves publicly as a supporter of, uh, of Russia, and diplomatically they remain sort of neutral, but actually in practical terms, they have not only decided to follow many American sanctions. In fact, they're not. They refuse to do business with about 75% of uh, 
uh, Chinese bank uh, of, of Russian sanctioned banks, uh, but they're also actually refusing to to pass on um, aircraft parts and so on um, uh, because they themselves are very afraid of uh, being sanctioned. So um, the the answer about tactical nukes is the Chinese think that they fixed that problem, but now that's off the table. Um, I have no way of verifying that information, but it came from a, from a very well informed well informed source, um, and we would hope that uh, you know the old Putin would realize that that was literally suicidal. It's like, you know, blowing off your own foot. I mean, that is just the absolute way to, to lose the war. But on the other hand, you know, we're in a very dangerous new territory because Putin has already done something that is massively self-defeating, totally illogical, based on bad information. You know, we don't know where this new dangerous, dangerously isolated and dangerously aggressive Putin is going to go. So I, I don't think we can just totally discount that danger. Absolutely. Right. Last question I went to. You wrote a, <clears throat> a week ago or so in the showdown between the armed talks and the impoverished doves, the former always wins. Uh, my question to you is, you're assuming there that there will be some kind of change at the top eventually. You think the armed talks will be will prevail over the um, the, the impoverished doves. If you were to name someone that would be likely to succeed Putin, who do you think it, that will be if you were having to put money on that today? Well, that's a very that's an easy question to answer. I mean, the 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 military and the Siloviki are all behind Shaigu, and the uh, and I happen to I mean I, I know somebody who's, who's who's very close to one of Russia's uh, Russia's richest men who said that they're talking very frankly about uh, the elite and the money uh, supporting Sergei Sabianyan. Strangely enough, I was surprised. But yeah, Sergei Sabianyan, the mayor of Moscow, who's actually you know a Putin loyalist, but in fact a fantastic manager and has actually done a lot of great things in Moscow and actually has, um, you know, so money behind Sabianyan, that's how it goes. But in this scenario, again, like from my source, uh, recounting this conversation with uh, one of uh, richest, one of Russia's richest uh, oligarchs, but as we now know, not politically powerful oligarchs, uh, uh, also added that um, in this scenario, Putin does not stay alive. There's no Putin's succession scenario, uh, I'm quoting, uh, under which Putin remains alive. It's too dangerous. Uh, but um, again, I'm just quoting a conversation. I, um, I, it's very hard to comment on the likelihood of some kind of, um, you know, all the people with the money ganging together against all the people with the guns. Uh, I don't really have any you know, clarity on the metrics of how or how likely that is. Or, uh, but right now, um, Putin and the people with the guns, uh, he's also the, the person who controls the television and thereby the minds and hearts of most Russians. Um, he certainly has the upper hand. And for all that we are convinced that they're losing the war, Russians will tell you very much otherwise that they're actually sort of the war is going you know, is, is 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 going swimmingly, and you know the, the you know and they're also drinking to the success of Russian arms and delighted how the progress of operations. So um, you know um, I think Putin is much less vulnerable than we would like to in sort of wishful way like to imagine. Well, on that note, thank you, uh, Owen. We will stop. Thank you. Uh so much, Aaron, for your time this afternoon. Anyone who's joined us who wants to follow Owen should be buying The Spectator to read him or buying some of his books or following him online. Uh, in his absence, I want to thank Sergei for joining and for his courage and fortitude. Uh, and to all of his fellow countrymen, we wish them all the best. Uh, Global Council, we will continue to follow these issues very closely. As I always say, this is, uh, yes, it's a big political event. It's also a massive humanitarian 
and um, social and uh, global tragedy. And we take uh, this very seriously. We don't for any moment uh, underestimate the scale and the cause of this. So thank you all for joining. Uh, please keep in touch. Owen, thanks to you again and see you all soon. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.